From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. Bracing for a possible pandemic, the world watches and waits as COVID-19, the coronavirus, continues to spread. More than two dozen people have self-quarantined in Rhode Island after a recent trip to China. Is it a matter of when, not if, the virus hits southern New England? And is our healthcare system ready? Our guest on the first half of Newsmakers, Rhode Island Department of Health Director, Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott. Welcome to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. On the second half of the program, we will be joined by Dr. Adam Levine from Brown University and Dr. Slim Sooner from Rhode Island Hospital, and we will be answering some of your viewer questions. Joining me now on the program is Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott from the Department of Health, thank you very much for joining us on the program. I know you are very busy, so we appreciate your time. Uh, first, a uh, disclosure to our viewers, we are taping this program on a Friday morning, and you may be watching it on Saturday or Sunday, so uh, this information is very fluid. But I, I'd like to ask you the question I posed at the top of the show, which is, is it a matter of when, not if, the coronavirus arrives in Rhode Island from your perspective? We currently have no cases in Rhode Island, but we are absolutely preparing for having cases. We are preparing for it being when and not if. We want to make sure that everyone understands what they can do, because people can. And a, a real grounder for this is what people need to do with the flu. You know, as we think about this, we recognize that there are unknowns here for all of us um, and that that can be scary. But we want to make sure that we're putting out information that helps people understand and process this um, so that there can be um, no panic as we prepare. At, a, at the most basic level, Dr. Alexander Scott, people are seeing a ton of talk about coronavirus. They see the headlines, they get nervous. What is making this uh, something that's getting more attention from public health officials than, I know flu is always a concern, but obviously this is a little different. Can you just in layman's terms explain why it's something that, that has become such a priority? Yes, the reason why this gets the attention is because this is a new type of coronavirus. So it's one that none of us have been exposed to before. Um, with the flu, with other types of coronaviruses, which causes the common cold most of the time, people have been exposed to it. There is a level of immunity in the community. We try to say with flu, let that immunity be you getting your flu vaccine mm. so that you are protected and the people around you are protected. Even by you getting your own flu vaccine, that helps protect the people around you. With coronavirus, similar to H1N1, the type of influenza that occurred in 2009, it was a new type of virus that no one had experienced before. And so without that immunity in the community, either from people having the infection or from being vaccinated, um, there is potential for the virus to impact more people. And what would be the sign that someone might have somehow gotten it? You know, is it, what, are the, what are the main symptoms that, that doctors are seeing in other parts of the world that they say, okay, this is someone we're gonna test? An important part for us as I go through the symptoms is understanding that the travel and connected to a place where there are cases is what distinguishes this may be coronavirus versus, the, uh, versus influenza or something else. That's because the symptoms are similar. You can have fever, you can have um, cough, respiratory symptoms associated with it, body aches and other uh, changes. Um, and so um, 
the association with someone traveling to a place where they are exposed to coronavirus is what makes the distinction. And that's why our healthcare providers across the state are well informed about making sure to ask a travel history. You'd said uh, earlier this week that a couple of people um, were tested for the coronavirus in Rhode Island. Uh, but since then, we've learned that the CDC tests were not necessarily reliable. Are you confident um, in the results of the tests that happened here? And do we have enough of the testing kits in this state if the coronavirus were to arrive or if we have a lot of suspicion that it could be here? Those great questions allow me to make some clarifications with that. There are enough tests that are reliable that are being done. Right now, they are being done at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They have expanded their capacity so that they are able to run the test accurately and confidently. And they are doing it in a quicker turnaround time, so within a 24-hour or so period, occasionally 48, but um, making sure that there is no backlog of testing. The challenges with the test had occurred when CDC was attempting to make it so that states had the test before us. Um, so that we could do the tests here as opposed to sending it to Atlanta to be tested. Um, we are continuing to work with them on that because we needed to um, do some validations. Nationwide, all of the states were having issues and so CDC is working on improving that so that the states could have it. But we are testing, we are confident in the tests, and it's being done by being sent to the CDC with a quick turnaround. All right, we're gonna get to some uh, viewer questions right now before you came on the program and our guests for the second half. We went on social media uh, and let everyone know you're coming on and we got a lot of questions, mm -hmm. um, which is not a surprise. This first one on Twitter from Josue, um, he is asking, does Rhode Island have or are planning to establish a quarantine center for infected patients. So uh, to expand on Josue's uh, question here, uh, are there discussions on where or how the state would set up a large treatment facility if we get hit hard? So we're absolutely considering all of the elements of this response. One of the key messages that um, we're continuing is if someone is ill, the potential to be able to stay home is also possible. It's not automatic that someone would have to go to a facility um, separate from it being a hospital if someone were to need it. We would only want people in the hospital that really need it. 80% or so of those who become ill with coronavirus internationally have mild illness, which means people can actually stay home. Quarantining means someone does not have any symptoms and we're monitoring them to see if they have any symptoms. So we would not set up a quarantine facility because those people can stay home with no symptoms and minimize their travel. Isolation occurs when you do need to um, uh, keep someone in a particular area who is experiencing symptoms. And we are considering the different types of isolation that will be possible. If someone is ill enough, and only if, which is a key so that we can really preserve the healthcare system for where we need it, we would want someone to be in the hospital isolated. But the majority of cases may not need that to happen, similar to the flu. Oftentimes people are home with the flu. We want people to be equipped with the understanding that if someone is not feeling well, particularly if they've traveled or have been exposed to someone who has traveled, but even with flu season, which is a key part to the message, stay home 
if you're not feeling well. We want employers to work with their employees to allow that to happen or to allow someone to stay home to care for a family member who is ill or think about teleworking policies and others. And if someone um, is just monitoring themselves without having any symptoms, they can figure out ways to work with their health care provider to make a determination about whether or not they can continue to stay home and just be monitored in communication with us at the Department of Health as opposed to going into the health care facility. Talking about health care facilities, uh, one concern I've heard brought up repeatedly is about, and topic you and I have discussed before, the closure of Memorial Hospital. And is there enough capacity, particularly in Providence and Blackstone Valley? No, we already hear about emergency rooms being overstretched. Lifespan says it all the time about the Miriam. We've seen diversions. Are you concerned about uh, how the ERs, especially in that part of the state, would be able to handle a surge in patients if there was some kind of outbreak? Uh, that's a natural consideration with or without coronavirus. How do we make sure that our healthcare systems have what they need? We've seen from uh, the report on how the community was impacted that although there was not a significant inpatient census there, there was active use of the emergency department. So we really want to um, work with our healthcare facilities, but then also work with the public to encourage people if they don't feel significantly ill, you don't have to go to the emergency room. We want to really preserve the hospital and ER facilities for people who are significantly ill, need oxygen, need some additional type of support. If it's something that you can manage at home in communication with a healthcare provider, that is particularly ideal, especially as we start to think about and prepare for coronavirus. We want people to understand the benefit of staying home as opposed to going to a healthcare facility where there's more people at risk so of being So do you think exposed. part of the problem uh, with Miriam being overstretched in particular as well as the other hospitals is just too many, still too many people going who don't necessarily need emergency room care? We have recognized that that is an important message that we need to raise awareness about. There are people that don't need to necessarily go and per particularly when fear occurs and there are unknowns, that's the number one place people tend to go. And we want to try to change that and help people understand how they can um, take care of themselves at home and how staying home is a better place sometimes. It's not always good to go into the hospital. And we want to really preserve the hospital for those who are severely ill and who need it. It's a similar message for masks. Um, personal protective equipment. Many people are seeing on the media that people are wearing masks. We really want to preserve the per personal protective equipment for people who need it, who are actually ill and showing symptoms. Just wearing a mask in the community, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is not saying that that will make a difference. And the importance of maintaining our storage and amount of masks available is critical. We want to make sure that it's available for the people who need it, for the healthcare providers who need it. And any healthcare providers or even public who are not caring for people who are ill do not need to wear a mask and everyone needs to help us make sure we have enough for those who need it. And we get a lot of questions from our viewers on masks. We're going to ask our uh, second half guests a couple of questions about that. I, I want to wrap up uh, our segment with you with this one. Uh, you have been telling everybody to you know prepare not panic how are you personally preparing uh, looking ahead to the coming months that's a great question um, staying calm 
taking deep breaths is the key indeed. Um, making sure that my family is vaccinated against the flu. That's a big message I have been talking about and promoting. Um, making sure that we have the ability to stay home if we're ill and have um, enough food, enough food, um, laundry services, all of the things that you would need to be able to stay home in uh, those situations. People are talking about that two week window given the incubation um, period. So encouraging people and my own family to think about what would we need if someone were to um, become sick and we needed to stay home to help do that, to care for um, the, the children in your, your family or, or the seniors in your family. So just thinking about those around you and your community, how to support each other, how to be kind to each other in this time of unknown. It's really about taking a deep breath, doing what you need to to prepare, knowing we've been here in some aspects in the past. We had a pandemic. Um, in 2001 with H1N1 and people made it through and um, doing what we can to support each other through this. Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott from the Department of Health, thank you very much for joining us. On the second half, we're gonna go to more of your viewer questions and our guests will be Dr. Adam Levine from Brown University and Dr. Salim Sooner from Rhode Island Hospital. Stay with us, you're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. Joining me, of course, my colleague, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi, and our guest from the second, uh, for the second half, we have Dr. Adam Levine. He's the director for the Center of Human Rights and Humanitarian Studies uh, and director of Division of Global Emergency Medicine, both at Brown University, and Dr. Salim Sooner at Rhode Island Hospital. He's the director of Disaster Medicine and Emergency Preparedness at Rhode Island Hospital. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Uh, before we get to some viewer questions, uh, I want to ask this one. I was listening to a podcast by the New York Times called The Daily, and a big topic of, of that, uh, as they were discussing the coronavirus, was the, vi the virus is expected to go dormant in the summer. Dr. Levine, I'll uh, put this question to you, then reemerge, possibly with more force in the fall. Is that what happens with, with these types of viruses? They sort of go dormant in hot weather and then they may come back when things cool off? Well, I would say I don't think we know enough about the virus at this point to make that prediction for certain, but we do know that with other types of respiratory infections like influenza, there certainly is a seasonal pattern. And what we see is during the uh, Northern Hemisphere winter months or resurgence of the disease, and then uh, during the summer, it declines in the Northern Hemisphere, but then surges in the Southern Hemisphere and that pattern of back and forth is seen with a number of respiratory diseases and possibly could be true of this new coronavirus as well. So we don't know enough about this one. Uh, will we not really know if this is the case until the fall and all of a sudden we see it come back or are we gonna learn a little bit more about the virus uh, as we approach the summer? Well, we'll probably be able to see also how the numbers are looking in the Southern Hemisphere uh, over the course of our summer and their winter. I mean, right now what we do with influenza is we actually use circulating strains in the Southern Hemisphere to develop our vaccine for the following season, a winter season in the Northern Hemisphere. And so we can learn a lot from global patterns of disease in terms of whether we might see it continue uh, next uh, winter season. Dr. Sooner, uh, you know, most people watching home will not be doctors. Uh, we're not doctors. And so part of what I think regular folks want to know is kind of how does this look to a doctor, someone who has expertise? I mean, how, how concerned are you personally with your experience about this overall? And I guess what is the biggest concern you have about, about this whole situation? 
So with infectious diseases, you know, we see this pattern every year. We, we don't know what the next flu season is going to be like. Some, some years it's very uh, heavy, other years it's a light flu season. This year it's a pretty heavy one. So we go through this cycle uh, yearly in terms of preparing our, our uh, staff and hospitals for the flu season, making sure everybody's getting vaccinated, uh, making sure we have enough masks, uh, preparing our surge plans in case we need to admit lots of people with uh, severe illness. And this is uh, a little bit different because it's a novel virus. It may have characteristics that uh, are different from the viruses we know of. Um, and it, the scope of this may uh, turn out to be much larger. And we don't know that yet. There's no need to panic currently, but uh, it's wise to start preparing, and that's what we've done. Dr. Levine, um, talk about the biology of the virus. I mean, what, what, what happens uh, to people? And, um, it, you know, Dr. Alexander Scott addressed it on the first half of the coronavirus is actually in part of the common cold. What makes COVID-19 different? And is it really the viral pneumonia that could result from that infection that's the most concerning aspect of it? Well, when you have any type of infectious disease, the characteristics about it that we care most about are how contagious it is, how easy it is to spread from person to person, and then how severe the illness is in the average individual who gets it. Um, and what we have with this virus is one that is spreading person to person similarly to uh, other respiratory infections that we're used to, like influenza. Probably on average, each person infects two to three other people. Um, however, it does look like the severity of the disease is higher than for influenza in that uh, somewhere between 2%, 3% of people who are infected with it, at least from the early data we have from China, have died from the disease. And what's the flu mortality? It's about, in the United States, 0.1%. Now, it's important to understand that those numbers are affected a lot by the healthcare system itself and also by how well um, you know how many people have the disease. So there's probably a large number of people in China who have the disease but weren't ever tested for it. And so a large number of men in China smoke, right? Something like 80% of the population that has to have an impact on that. Exactly, and so if you have pre-existing respiratory conditions, if you're elderly, you're gonna be more at risk for dying from the disease. But that mortality of 2% is probably much lower even in China, just because we don't know how many total mm. people were actually infected with the disease. We just know how many people died and how many people were sick enough to come into the hospital and get a test. So I think we have to put it a little bit in perspective. It probably is more severe than flu, but probably not as severe as the reports that we're seeing. Um, we're gonna go to a viewer question, and uh, Dr. Sooner will uh, put this one to you. And we got, we got quite a few of this question, actually, but we'll go with Mike on Twitter. He sent to us, how confident uh, are they, meaning you, our guests, that it can't be transmitted via packages sent here from China? Can someone get this virus if some, something is shipped to them from China? So there are some data that show that uh, this virus can survive on surfaces, uh, particularly metal surfaces, and if you touch that metal surface, you may con be contaminated, and then if you touch your face or mouth, that you may get infected. However, uh, a package that has traveled uh, through the postal system uh, from China it's very unlikely that uh, any viral particles uh, would survive that, uh, that trip. Based on time? just Based on time, environmental conditions, you know, they're up in airplanes, uh, the temperature variations, uh, UV radiation, uh, it's very unlikely. And uh, I'm not aware of any reports of anybody being uh, 
getting contaminated or getting the disease uh, from packages. I'll, I'll stick with you for this one, Dr. Sooner. Another viewer question. This one is from Jerry. Uh, he asked, and we talked about masks in the first half with Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott. He said, is it effective to wear a common dusk mask? Also, is it true that a surgical mask is not necessary nor helpful? I'll start with the second part first. Uh, you know, a mask is just a barrier. Uh, the, the mask that uh, healthcare providers wear when taking care of patients, there are specialized masks uh, that were fitted for, but the uh, population wearing masks that we see in, on TV uh, in the streets, those are common surgical masks and they're just a barrier. Um, they, they do protect the mouth and nose from particulates uh, in the air. Uh, however, uh, it has not been shown that uh, they prevent disease. Because when you, it's not, it's not just the mask, it's not just your mouth or nose. You can contaminate yourself by touching your eyes, um, not washing your hands. So it's the whole package mm -hmm. that's really protective. Washing hands and not touching the face goes a long way and, and much farther way than uh, wearing a mask. Dr. Levine, uh, a question for you. you study, you've studied Ebola and other uh, you know, pandemics, epidemics. What are you gonna be watching in the coming days, week, weeks maybe, uh, to decide either, oh good, this is not quite as bad as we feared it might be, or, all right, this is quite serious. I mean, what, what, you know, as we try to make sense of the news, what will you be watching? Um, well, I mean, I think I would say, number one, it is quite serious already. Uh, but number two, that doesn't mean that we need to panic. Um, it's very likely, based on what we're seeing, that we're going to have sustained transmission in multiple different countries. And so that sets this up for being a pandemic. People should not freak out necessarily when that's declared because of the fact that we deal with pandemics all the time. We have pandemic flu every single year, basically, and we have a number of other diseases that are widespread across the world that we handle and we manage. The key is going to be for the individual healthcare systems to be able to set up plans for being prepared for screening for the disease, for testing for it, and for treating people who have it. The problem will be mostly in those countries that have weak healthcare systems, especially I worry about countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, and other parts of the world that don't have as strong healthcare systems and don't have as much redundancy in their healthcare system as we do here. And so that's why we really need to think about how as a country we're going to help support those other countries in order to reduce the transmission of disease there and in turn help us by reducing disease coming back to the U.S. Dr. Sooner, from a hospital perspective, uh, you know, one of the great differences between, say, the Spanish flu of 1918 to if, if it were ever to get that big here is we have a much improved medical uh, you know, facilities around us, but uh, respirators are needed if it gets to be that severe. Uh, do our hospitals have enough respirators right now if we were to get hit very hard with this and, we, and, and patients were in need of those? So starting with the first reports coming out of China, uh, our hospital system, Rhode Island Hospital and Lifespan, has been asking those type of questions uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, we meet and discuss our supplies, our equipment, our, uh, you know, how do we protect our workforce, uh, what kind of personal protective equipment do we need, what kind of protocols are we developing if uh, someone comes in with the suspicion of uh, COVID-19 um, and uh, we get all the experts into a room. Uh, we have a task force uh, dedicated just for these questions. Um, 
do one last viewer question, and I'll pose this to you, Dr. Levine. Um, and you know, we, we saw the stock for Clorox bleach go uh, through the <laughs> roof, and uh, I think this applies here. Uh, MJ uh, emailed this one in. What cleaning agents do you need to kill the virus? Specifically asking about Clorox wipes or those Lysol wipes. Um, obviously, bleach, soap, and water. Do those Clorox wipes work uh, yeah. to kill the virus? So certainly all of those would be effective to kill this virus and all others that uh, we have circulating right now. Um, simply washing your hands with soap and water is also incredibly effective. Using alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizers like Purell, also very effective. Um, I think that for the most part, this disease is transmitted by uh, respiratory droplets or contact, and so it's really our hands and our face that we have to worry the most about. But with cleaning surfaces, uh, the, again, I think that's what that question meant, the Clorox wipes would work, it would be, be effective. effective. Yes, okay. with but the, also cleaning the surface with soap and water would be effective too. Less than a minute left, I would even say 30 seconds. Dr. Sooner, I'll ask you the question I asked the director in the first half, how are you preparing personally? Well, I'm doing some of the similar things that uh, the director has been doing. Uh, particularly with uh, elderly patients, uh, parents, uncles, aunts. Uh, I'm making sure they have enough medications in the house, uh, enough food, so that if they uh, do need to stay in the house, that they're prepared to do that. Um, and uh, also, you know, stocking up on, on some stuff. Uh, in case I need to stay home if my wife is feeling ill. All right, we have to go. We're going to continue this conversation on WPRI.com. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to WPRI.com. I'm Tim White, along with my colleague Ted Nisi. We are continuing our conversation from newsmakers on the coronavirus because we had so many viewer questions we didn't get to them on the show. And uh, Dr. Adam Levine from Brown University has been kind enough to stay with us for the next few minutes to uh, get to some of those questions. He is uh, the director for the Center of Human Rights and Humanitarian Studies and the director of Division of Global Emergency Medicine at Brown University. Dr. Levine, thanks for sticking around with this. Before we get to uh, the viewer questions that I uh, referenced there, uh, I want to ask you kind of a, a, a broad question about the country's response or preparedness, I guess is a better way to put it. There's been some uh, criticism of how, how well prepared the federal government is right now. Are you satisfied with how the federal government is handling this, or do you have concerns? Well, I mean, I think that the CDC has been taking, you know, very reasonable steps to respond to this epidemic so far since it began. And I think it's filled with very smart and very capable people that are doing an excellent job. That being said, they're dealing with the fact that the CDC has been reduced in size and funding over the last three years. And as a result of that, they don't have the full capacity that they need to respond, not just here in the U.S., but especially globally. And of course, when you're dealing with a pandemic, you have to think not just about your domestic response, but the global response, because we're all connected together. And a bad uh, outbreak of the disease in a country in sub-Saharan Africa or a country in Latin America is going to feed back and worsen the disease here in the U.S. And this is a specialty of yours. You, you've spent a lot of time studying Ebola, as we were talking about. And I could imagine some people listening and saying, well, wait a minute, Dr. Levine, like, those countries have to have their healthcare systems. We have ours. Why should our CDC be worried about that? How 
important historically is the American involvement in other countries' outbreaks to, to keep things from getting worse globally? Uh, extremely important both American and also international organizations' involvement in countries which have uh, weaker healthcare systems is incredibly important to prevent the spread of epidemics in those countries. And the CDC has been very involved for decades in helping reduce the spread of all sorts of different epidemics around the world, including the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. And the U.S. response in West Africa is largely, along with a couple other countries, responsible for ensuring that that epidemic was able to become controlled and not spread and become a pandemic around the world. We already know that uh, you know, coronavirus has spread to many different countries around the world. Some of those countries have very weak healthcare systems, which will allow the virus to spread very rapidly and kill many more people in those countries. And we have to care about that because if it's spreading in those countries, some of that spread is going to come back to the U.S. as well. And we can do our best to stop it from coming back to the U.S. by uh, reducing its spread in those countries. Not to mention, you know, the people in those countries and the high mortality that they'll experience from the disease. Before we get to our viewer questions, um, focusing back on COVID-19 itself, from what we've seen overseas, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this isn't impacting kids as much as it is older adults. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I can't speculate. I know that in general with most respiratory infections, such as pandemic flu, uh, the population that's most infected, most affected is the elderly. People who are over 65 uh, make up a large portion of the mortality and especially the severe illness each year, as well as people with chronic respiratory symptoms. Um, we do usually also see a small spike in young children, especially very young children, uh, but typically sort of healthy younger population is less affected and if they get the disease they don't have as severe symptoms. And I think we are seeing that with COVID-19 as well, but you know, the data is still not out yet. As a parent of two kids though, I, I wondered also, the coronavirus is, as the director said on, on the Newsmakers program, it's also the common cold. And I, I can't remember a time my kids didn't have a cold. <laughs> so is it possible that that helps in any way, that they have all that swimming around in them? Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I can say that for certain. This <laughs> okay. is a novel. This is why uh, I don't have novel virus, but I completely, um, I completely understand. I have a 14-month-old daughter, and <laughs> she has a cold constantly. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, in general, the same things that hold true of protecting ourselves hold true of protecting our children. Uh, if they're sick, keep them home. Don't send them to school or daycare, and set up plans for how you can ensure that you have childcare available if you need to uh, keep your child home from school. All right, Ted, I'm going to get to a viewer question. Uh, this one uh, via Twitter from Shia, and we, look, we, probably the number one question we got was about face masks, uh, and she asks, assuming they help, does Rhode Island have an adequate stock of face masks for state hospital use and private purchase? I don't know if you can answer the latter part, if you have a grasp on the stock here in Rhode Island, but answer that if you can. Uh, maybe answer the first half of that, which we touched on a little in Newsmakers, but about the efficacy of uh, face masks. Yeah, so, I mean, there's no need for a face mask if you're healthy and have no symptoms at all. The face mask is really made, when we put it on patients in the hospital, for instance, to keep them from spreading it to other people. So when they cough, when they sneeze, the particles get stuck uh, behind the mask. Uh, and if those droplets can't reach another human being, then they can't spread the disease to another human being. If you're healthy, though, you don't need a mask. And the worldwide supply of masks is strained. I can't speak specifically to Rhode Island, but I know worldwide there's a shortage of all different types of masks. And so we need to make sure that only those who really need it, i.e. people who are sick in the hospital and the healthcare workers taking care of them, 
uh, should have access to those. In fact, you told me off air that you've heard from folks you work with who are in Africa, I believe, that the panicked buying of masks for coronavirus is harming their ability to get masks for the Ebola outbreak. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, the team that I work with fighting the Ebola epidemic in Congo right now has found out that their supply of masks is threatened because of the coronavirus outbreak. Ebola makes me think about vaccines, and I remember when that, there was such alarm about Ebola, I think in 2014, and then uh, there was a, a lot of relief because it seemed like the vaccine was developed quite quickly in that case. Was that unusual, or could you see us having, uh, could you see the researchers having uh, surprisingly quick success to find a vaccine for this novel coronavirus? Well, the time between identification of a, a new disease and production of a vaccine has been decreasing, and that's really good news. In fact, I heard that they already have some candidate vaccines for COVID-19 for the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes it. Um, it still takes at least a year to do appropriate testing on the vaccine and ensure that it is effective and that it's safe before it can be licensed for regular use. So we're still at least a year away from having a vaccine in use, but certainly it could happen that quickly within a year or so. Our last uh, viewer question, and, and this speaks to capacity. People are really freaking out about the capacity here in Rhode Island, I guess everywhere. Uh, if, if we get hit hard, and Janine wrote us, if 100 beds were needed to isolate patients with pneumonia, where would they be in one hospital wing, spread around to multiple sites? Any idea how that would work? It's probably a better question for the director, uh, <laughs> honestly, but uh, do you have any thoughts as someone who kind of studies uh, uh, epidemics? Maybe what's best practice yeah. would be another way to look at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that for the most part, developed healthcare systems like the United States have a bit of excess capacity and so can handle a surge in cases and sometimes it means things like reducing you know, elective surgeries, for instance, so those beds that would have gone to people having an elective and not immediately necessary surgery can go to a mm. patient who has you know, uh, respiratory symptoms from a novel virus such as this. Um, it's in very, only in very rare cases that you actually need to build new facilities to house infected patients. Um, and you know, who knows where this is gonna go, but I wouldn't think that that is gonna be a particular problem here in Rhode Island. All right, we gotta let you go. Uh, but uh, final question for you, uh, and I asked this of Dr. Sooner. Uh, what are you doing personally to prepare? Um, so number one, I am psychologically preparing myself for the fact that this epidemic is going to get worse, that we're going to have more cases in the U.S., we're going to have a case in Rhode Island. I'm preparing myself to watch your new show and hear about the first cases <laughs> in Rhode Island so that when it happens, I'm not scared and I'm not freaked out. And that, I think, is really important for everyone to think about. Number two, uh, having backup plans for if you get sick, staying home from work, figuring out how to telework, if your kids get sick, making sure you have childcare so that they can stay home, because the most important way that we can prevent spread of this disease is by people who are sick staying home and not spreading the disease to their coworkers, their uh, schoolmates and their neighbors, et cetera. Um, finally, you know, taking specific measures like washing your hands frequently, you know, avoiding shaking hands uh, with anybody who could be sick, avoiding uh, you know, anybody who's coughing, those very simple basic measures can be used to protect yourself. It's amazing, but washing your hands, the thing our moms taught us as a little kid is still just, is so important to this, it sounds like. It is the most effective way to prevent yourself from getting this disease and to prevent others from getting the disease from you. And so, and all other types of <laughs> infectious diseases as well um, that are spread person to person. So we should definitely be doing that. 
Dr. Adam Levine from Brown University, thanks very much for sticking around. And you uh, can see continuing coverage of the coronavirus concerns on the website right here on WPRI.com. We have the latest headlines, a map of confirmed cases from the United States, plus important information from the CDC. I want to thank you for watching this WPRI.com Digital Extra.